0: same thing here. I'd have to say that um, Sola Scriptura was not a doctrine that I even considered as needing to be demonstrated from the pages of Scripture alone. It's like
1: gravity, like nobody needs to prove to me that gravity is real, I just got to walk off of a cliff. And Welcome to yet another episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, I being Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley, my colleague uh, with the Coming Home Network. We're glad you're along. If you like what you're hearing and watching, please subscribe and uh, let us know what you think and join the conversation. Ken, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing great. And if this were an episodic TV drama, this would be the part of the episode where you'd hear somebody say, previously, an On the Journey. (laughs) So this is, uh, this is your chance to recap the show. Yeah, okay, okay.
0: Well, we're talking about Sola Scriptura. And uh, last week, we spent our time identifying Sola Scriptura as the foundational idea within the Protestant system of thought or within the Protestant worldview. And we spent a little bit of time defining it, and that's what I've got to sum up very, very quickly, because this is the key issue. I mean, this is the key doctrinal issue in the entire Protestant worldview. It was for me, I'm sure it was for you. We'll talk about that in a moment. But anyway, we defined it using Protestant scholars, um, Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie. And they define Sola Scriptura as the belief that scripture is to function in the church's life and in the individual Christian's life as the sole only infallible rule of faith and practice. And what that means is that everything God wants us to know, all of the material of divine revelation has been laid out for us in the pages of uh, the inspired Word of God, either explicitly or implicitly. And that so the scripture is materially sufficient, but even more important uh, for our discussion, it's formally sufficient, which means that everything's laid out and it's laid out clearly enough that uh, the simple believer can study the Word of God and can learn everything that he or she needs to know uh, for faith and for practice. No teaching authority is required on earth. Certainly no infallible teaching authority.
1: Which is weird because you'd think that that means there's only going to be one church. But instead, churches and theologians that go by that standard splinter every day, you get a new one. So yeah. yeah. And
0: and that's why um, we're not going to leave this subject quickly. In fact, we're going to spend a few weeks, I think, digging into the question, is Sola Scriptura scriptural? And that's kind of where we are today.
1: All right, so... This is where we get into assumptions. We were talking about foundations, and Mm -hmm. uh, that was the the main focus of the last round of discussions. And this idea of Sola Scriptura is so ingrained into you, it's like breathing. If you are a strong Protestant Christian of almost any stripe. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Ken. I never thought—I thought to question Sola Scriptura was to question the authority of Scripture itself. So— Mm -hmm. Even anybody saying something like, is Sola Scriptura real? I'd be like, that would strike me the same way as someone saying, is the Bible the Word of God? Because that's how I heard the question. It never occurred to me to even think about whether or not Sola Scriptura is even taught on the pages of Scripture or practiced by the people in the Scriptures.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, Same thing here. I'd have to say that Sola Scriptura was not a doctrine that I even considered as needing to be demonstrated from the pages of Scripture alone. It's like
1: gravity; like nobody needs to prove to me that gravity is real. I just got to walk off of a cliff.
0: Yeah, sola Scriptura, as an as an evangelical Protestant, which I was for uh, about twenty years, it was, if you will, the atmosphere in which I lived and moved and had my very being. From the home Bible study where I really came to sincere faith in Christ to begin, um, I'm thinking of that. Bible college, um, my time in seminary through all my years as a pastor. Um, well, every I'll put it this way, every believer I knew presupposed that the Bible is to function in our life as the sole and sufficient infallible rule of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura was a given. And, and here's something uh, interesting, Matt. It seemed self-evident to me because when you think about it, here was the logic. Scripture is inspired and nothing else is. I mean, there's no pastor that's inspired, there's no teacher, there's no denominational creed, certainly no pope, certainly no uh, Catholic Church council, and so by default, sola scriptura.
1: Which is kind of like a because I said so sort of argument for sola scriptura, because when you start to analyze it, you know, and we'll get into this much later, um, the reason to trust Scripture is because it's Scripture, and the reason we believe it's Scripture is because we told you that it's Scripture. But who told you that it's Scripture? It doesn't matter, it's Scripture. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like you go, you go, you get into the loop, and and it's, it's it, we wouldn't treat any other inspired text like this. Christians wouldn't treat the Book of Mormon like this. We wouldn't treat the Quran like this. Um, no, there's there's no other inspired text that we would treat like this, but we treat the scriptures like this.
0: No, and since we're talking to, um, we're talking to Christians, we're talking to evangelical Protestants, we're talking to Catholics. Um, while we could go into a whole apologetics thing about why is the bible or how do we know the bible is the word of god or how do we know it's inspired but the important thing to say here is simply that it functioned within our worldviews as at the presuppositional level it was it was simply where we start it was the it was the foundation upon which we stand and we move on from there okay and so um that's what it was and so i didn't ask the question does the bible teach it until I was challenged by, by Catholic apologists when I began to look at Catholicism. And I was being challenged um, to, to answer a question I had never even asked before, you know, does the scripture teach Sola Scriptura? So when I went to um, begin to examine it, that was the question that I cared about. First of all, does the Bible actually teach this thing? Protestant scholars, Geisler and McKenzie had summarized it again, Here, here's Sola Scriptura, the belief that, quote, the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Think about that. Nothing more than the Bible, nothing less. Nothing else is all that is necessary for faith and practice. Is this something that is actually taught well, in the New there's, Testament?
1: Well, there's so many ways that you can say from the outside that, yes, we believe that this book that we have in our rooms is is inspired, but in order to do that, you kind of have to look at how the people in the Scripture treat the Scriptures that came before them, you know, because Scripture is yeah. not written over a weekend, right? It's not compiled yeah. and 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 all set out, you know, in the course of a summer. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, this is written over centuries, Ken. Yeah. I mean, you you got a lot of people who've got to be on the same page, literally and figuratively, in order to come up with a book that makes sense and is consistent with itself from page one of Genesis to the last page of Revelation. Otherwise, you know, what are you supposed to do? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, you know, as I said, as, a, as an evangelical, as a Protestant, um, I assumed the truth of Scripture, meaning the inspiration of Scripture. So what I was going to ask now is, does the Bible teach it? Is this something that the Bible teaches? And what I want to try to do today, um, in the short time we have, is explain how I began to think through the issue. Because there, there are a lot of ways that you could approach it. But here's how I began to think it through. The first question that I asked myself was, Okay, let, let's start with those actually living during the time of the New Testament when the apostles are alive and the New Testament writings are being written. What was the actual practice of those living during that time? Was Sola Scriptura the rule for these earliest Christians? Or put another way, what functioned as binding authority for those early Christians living during the times of the apostle? That's the first question that I asked. and. Here's where it begins well obviously the authority of the inspired scriptures that was there and in fact this is something protestants and catholics believe both of us and so there's no dispute here and it's something we can deal with pretty quickly really um when you read the gospels jesus treated the writings of moses and the prophets as though they were binding and authoritative three times the devil came to jesus and three times what
1: well, three times the devil quoted scripture, first of all, <laughs> you know, Then three times Jesus well, quoted him back scripture, saying that he was misusing those <laughs> scriptures. So we know that, at least from the pages of scripture, there's a wrong way to interpret it.
0: Well, okay, Satan didn't quote scripture every time. Satan came and said some things like, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones in.
1: Sure. But you're right. But he, he used examples it... from, you know, the yeah. the, 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 the yeah. recorded life yeah. of the, the people of Israel. And yeah, it, you know, yeah. even the devil quotes scripture to its advantage, as we also see on the pages of scripture.
0: That's right. So, three times the devil comes with temptations, three times our Lord quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, it is written, it is written, it is written. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about how not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. He speaks in another place of how the scriptures cannot be broken. Okay, there's no doubt about that, we don't really have to belabor the point. Jesus treated the Old Testament writings as though they were binding and authoritative, and so did the apostles. They quote from the Old Testament writings again and again and again as authoritative and binding. They allude to the Old Testament scriptures constantly. And then they say things like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work So there's no question at this level, Matt, for those living during the time of the apostles, both the simple believers and the apostles, the inspired writings were authoritative.
1: Well, that's for sure. Um, But what if, Ken, what if you and I were hanging out and uh, having this great conversation and at the end of the day, you wrote me a letter saying, previously as we discussed, Matt, this, that, and the other, and I want to just make some <laughs> amendments to this conversation. And then, Ken, yeah. you and I get hit by a semi-truck, and our, you get hit by one in California, I get hit by one in D.C., and somebody picks up this letter of St. Ken to the Church of Matthew, and it's like, well, <laughs> we know the rubric for how to interpret Ken's thing. Don't watch this video. Don't, let's, don't, I don't want to hear what people heard from Ken from the pulpit or heard from him on his YouTube channel. I have what Ken wrote. Right, it's right here. You know, so we know that that not only does Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, say, Listen to what I wrote, he also says, Listen to things that you and I have had conversations about.
0: And that's the second one. We can see, or I could see as I was looking at this question of what is the practice, I could see that that the earliest Christians held to the inspired word of God as authoritative and binding, but they also held to the oral teaching of the apostles as authoritative and binding. And the question you're getting into with your hy- your what's it called the heretical hypothetical. is I mean, that, is it's, that it's what they call this? Especially heretical. I mean, did you say it was the same semi truck that hit you and I both on the East Coast? Well, it and was the a, West? no, it was
1: a different trucks, but I think it was yeah. coordinated by the same truck company. Truck trucking company. Okay.
0: Well, we we're hit have to Ken's. Sue them.
1: Okay. Call one we'll eight hundred so and so to report this. <laughs> okay. How's my driving, Ken?
0: The ri- the writings were authoritative. Both the Old Testament writings, and I don't wanna get into detail here, but the New Testament writings as they were being written and understood to be inspired, okay, were authoritative, but also the oral teaching of the apostles was authoritative. And now a few things to say about this. Of course, the apostles weren't inspired in the sense that uh, they didn't walk around and everything they said was special revelation from God. And you know, so, so John and Peter are traveling through Samaria, for instance, and John says to Peter, you know, I hear they make a killer you know, falafel out here in Shechem, <laughs> let's stop by, Let, you know, since COVID-19 around, let's do takeout tonight. It doesn't mean that you could take those statements and staple them into your New Testament as though everything they said was inspired. At, at, at the same time, when Jesus sent the apostles out, he gave them his spirit, he gave them his own authority, and he said to them, the one who listens to you listens to me. And it's very clear that the apostles taught with an awareness, and this is what you're getting at with your your, imagine this, Ken, it's very clear that the apostles taught with an awareness that the substance of their teaching, their doctrine, what they were passing on, was as binding when it was spoken as it was when it was written down.
1: It can, if we didn't believe that, then we wouldn't believe the Gospels, because what are the Gospels? The Gospels aren't the letters yeah. of Saint Jesus to the Church yeah. of Luke's yeah. community, no, we don't have anything that Jesus wrote except for some stuff in the dust when the woman was accused of adultery. We got nothing that Jesus wrote.
0: Nothing. So it was what the apostle. So it was what the apostles taught and then wrote down
1: and experienced and witnessed mm-hmm. and 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 saw while they traveled. Well, the
0: thing is, we can see this in the New Testament. I, I'm thinking of a couple of passages in First Thessalonians two verse thirteen. The apostle Paul gives thanks to God that when he came to the Thessalonians for the first time preaching to them. He says, the people accepted his message, and now I'm quoting, quote, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And in his second letter to them, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul goes further. He commands them to, and I quote again, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Whether by word of mouth or by letter from us, he commands them to stand firm and hold them. Now, I was so used to thinking of the word tradition as something bad. Traditions
1: of men, we always used them. Whenever we saw something we didn't like, we called that a tradition of man.
0: Well, yeah, you know, Jesus is always blasting the Pharisees for putting their traditions ahead of the word of God. I had such a negative impression of the word tradition, because also it's a word that you find in Catholicism that I I remember being thrown a bit off balance when I first saw this passage, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, and when I first understood its implications. But, you know, the Greek word used here for tradition is the Greek word paradosis, and it simply means something that is handed on. Tradition is simply something handed on. It can be good, it can be bad, and when Paul uses it here, obviously it's good. What he's simply saying to these believers in Thessalonica is that what he's simply commanding them, is that they should receive and treat as authoritative Christian doctrine whatever Paul handed on to them, whether it was something he wrote down in a letter to them, or whether it was something that he taught them when he was with them.
1: So, Ken, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but this is right at that point that you're discussing, this this question of hold fast to the traditions. I am going to—this won't even fit on the screen when I lift it. It's my parallel Bible (laughs) with— It's the comparative study Bible. Right. It's got four Bible translations in it. And in it, I've got the King James, the Amplified, which is All a right. tiresome read. The New American Standard and the New International Version. The 1984. And in the King James, the Amplified, and in the New American Standard, it says, Hold to the traditions which you were taught. There's a little bit of a different thing in the New International Version, 1984. It says uh, here in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2:15, hold to the teachings we passed on to you. Mm-hmm. The NIV does this weird thing when whenever they see tradition used in a positive way, they replace it with the word teachings. And whenever they see yeah. it in a negative way, they replace it with the word traditions. So I think that's it. part of Yeah, so that's, I think, part of the reason why we're conditioned to every time we see the word tradition in the scriptures, as if you were an evangelical like me, um, who was resistant mm-hmm. to the idea of that, you would automatically associate traditions with bad things,
0: well, that's that's the problem with dynamic equivalent translations versus formal whatnot. equivalency. Because, well, because a a translation, you can't escape the fact that uh, someone who is translating is interpreting, and so you know, as you said, the 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 translators of the NIV, they're evangelicals, they're Protestants. So when the word tradition occurs and it's in a positive light, you just you translate it as teaching, and when it's in a bad light, you translate it tradition but the word is paradosis it's that which is handed on and the important thing is paul says whether i taught it to you when i was with you or whether it was written down either way hold fast to it okay and, and
1: it's, again this is this is talking about paul mm-hmm. as a teacher mm-hmm. and yeah. like any other teacher you don't just listen to the lecture or just read the paper you take the teacher kind of as a whole that's, that's just what right. you do
0: that's right and you know as i thought about this i could see that it actually makes perfect sense. Because think of it like this. Here's my little thought experiment. Wouldn't it be absurd to think that when Paul came to the church in Thessalonica, that when he says to them, um, or when he writes to them, the dead in Christ shall rise first, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that that is binding and authoritative. But when he's in the city of Thessalonica and he gathers them together and he says to them, the dead in Christ will rise first, that's not authoritative.
1: That sounds like a press conference to me. (laughs) <laughs> it mean, sounds like I mean, somebody trying to interpret like well, you know you, and we see this but yeah. we see this all the time in like you know people trying to make this arguments that yeah. don't listen to the thing that the politician said listen to the thing that's in their policy proposal or whatever well what if these are not two different people paul's not two pauls no. you know no. he's not the guy he doesn't have paul doing no. his pr in thessalonica and another paul writing his speeches it's Paul. No.
0: yeah it's very clear that during the time of the apostles yeah when paul comes along What he writes is authoritative and what he teaches is authoritative. So we have inspired scripture and we have the oral teaching of the apostles conceived as authoritative and binding for those living during that time. And I have one last illustration. I think about the day of Pentecost. Think about Peter standing up and addressing the crowds in Jerusalem, all these Jews that had come for the feast of Pentecost from all over the diaspora, all over the Greek world, the Roman, uh, the Greco-Roman world. And he stands up and he says, "'Men of Israel, listen to these words, And Peter goes on to announce to them authoritatively things that had never been written down anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. He interprets passages from the Old Testament in ways that no one had ever interpreted them before. And yet what he says to them that day is to be received as God's word, authoritative. And the text tells us, verse 38 of chapter two of Acts, that the crowds were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do? Mm -hmm. So for Christians living during the apostolic age, and I'm, a, I'm an, an evangelical pastor at the time, but I could see clearly that authority resided for them in the inspired writings, but also in the oral teaching of the apostles. So, and then thirdly— Yeah, I was just so, going oh, to say, sorry.
1: so far, um, as if you were a Catholic apologist pointing things, things out to me when I was at Asbury College, you know, semi-minoring mm-hmm. in Bible, but never finishing up the minor, I would have said, yeah, so what's your problem here? You, nothing you have said so far about you know. Of course, they listened to Peter when they when he spoke, and of yep. course, they listened to Peter when he wrote. You know, and no okay. no no major problems here for me at least no, when no, I was no, at this no, stage.
0: No no this simply makes sense, and that it, it shouldn't be an issue. But let's push it forward because we will be coming somewhere. All right, I mean we will arrive somewhere unless we get hit by some theoretically. Watch out all for right. those trucks, Ken. Okay, so there's scripture, there's the oral teaching of the apostles as authoritative, and then there is thirdly the decisions of the church's leadership when it meets. In council and I'm referring here obviously to the very very key chapter Acts chapter 15 in the New Testament and I need to expand on this a little bit for those who don't know the passage chapter 15 of Acts begins by saying some men came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses you cannot be saved This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. Uh, you no. know what,
1: as, as you go into this, Ken, it just reminds me, I mean, yeah. the controversies that our church deals with today, you know, you talk about a controversial, I mean, I'm just glad there weren't flowcharts and PowerPoint presentations at this first council on circumcision. I mean, I'm telling you, if for all of the things, that for the early church to really have their first major throwdown over, it is kind of strange that this would be the one.
0: Yeah, and I don't think when they're discussing circumcision that we need flowcharts or—
1: I would hope not. You
0: know, we don't need charts too much, but—okay, but what we're reading about here in Acts chapter 15, Matt, What we're reading about is the first serious theological dispute to arise in the early church the question was this and it came mainly from jewish converts in the church in jerusalem probably from the pharisees and the question was this must gentile converts to the faith must they receive circumcision and keep the customs of moses must they essentially become jews in order to be saved some were saying yes others were arguing no and to settle the question, what we have is the apostles and the elders meet in Jerusalem at what has been referred to ever since as the Council of Jerusalem, the very first council of the Christian history. And in a nutshell, without going into the details, here's what happened. The apostles and elders meet, they discuss, they debate, and they decide. And they draft a letter. You could refer to it as a decree, if you like. They draft a decree informing the churches of the council's ruling. And in this letter, this is really crucial, in this letter they decide they describe the decision that they came to at the council as being the decision of the Holy Spirit. And I'm reading now from verse 27 and 28 of Acts 15. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to conform, to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And so the letter goes out. And then finally we read in verses 30 and 31 that the letter is received by the churches with joy. So they went off, they went down to Antioch. When they had gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. In other words, the the ruling of this council was accepted as authoritative and binding as being the, rule, the ruling of the Holy Spirit. And none of the Christians in Antioch think to respond, thank you very much for your guidance in this matter, we will examine the scriptures and see whether these sayings be so, um, we'll get back to you, nothing like that. Instead, what we read is that the Christians rejoiced that the matter had been settled now, and they could focus on living out the truths of the faith rather than spending the rest of their lives trying to figure out what the truth of the faith
1: is. There's so much in that story, Ken, and it's going to come up in different ways throughout yeah. the course of this discussion of Sola Scriptura, but one of them is a question that you don't really think to ask yourself if you're just saying, well, this is in the Scriptures, this is what they decided, and mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is the Bible, it's inspired. What, what, you, what I didn't think of was, if this was going to be such a potentially church-dividing issue right there out of the gates... Why didn't Jesus, at least before he left, have said, oh, just so you know, some of you guys are going to fight over circumcision, and uh, when that comes up, here's what I have to say about it. He doesn't.
0: Yeah. yeah. You
1: know, he doesn't. He trusts to the mm-hmm, authority mm-hmm, of the, these men mm-hmm. he's appointed, some of whom came to radically different conclusions as they approached the council. So there was some kind of authority that took place there that was not just based solely on the words of Jesus Christ, right? Or on the words, on the words of the words of Old Moses. Testament,
0: yeah, around the words of the Old Testament, or or, yeah, there was a discussion, and so let me kind of um. We've made some simple points, but let me kind of bring it together here. Um, as I was looking uh, through this issue, beginning to ask myself the question: Is sola scriptura biblical? Is the Bible you know teaching it? Um, looking at the practice to begin with of the earliest believers living during the time of the apostles, uh, something that was very clear to me, and again, I don't think it's really controversial, it shouldn't be to anyone, but it was clear to me that they were not practicing Sola Scriptura. I mean, at least at that stage, Scripture was not functioning for them as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, the final court of appeal, et cetera, et cetera. For them, it was not the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else all that is needed, for them at least it was not. For these earliest Christians, it's clear that authority resided one, in the inspired scripture, Old and New Testament as it was being written, two, in the oral teaching of the apostles, and three, in the decision of the church's leadership, their magisterium, if you will, when it met in council to decide an issue of doctrine, to define the teaching of the faith. This was clear and here's the thing that is a little bit, at least it's thought-provoking at this point. It was also clear that in terms of this basic pattern, Scripture, that's tradition, one. That's two. The, the oral teaching, the magisterium, if you will, that's in a terms three-legged of this basic stool. pattern, the earliest Church is looking an awful lot like what we have seen from the beginning and to this day in the Catholic Church.
1: That's exactly, and, and that's a scary thing. and. It, unless somebody points out and tells you when you're at this part of your journey, like I was, um, unless somebody says, Oh yeah, that's the authority structure that exists in the Catholic church. You don't realize it straight off. I mean, I knew you, you came across this because you were working with apologists. I didn't, I came across it because I was just arguing with other Protestants about what the Bible meant and said, well, it can't be just my opinion versus your opinion. There has to be some sort of external authority that says this or that or the other, or some sort of tradition Mm -hmm. that informs the way that we've always looked at this question. And if you don't realize it, you start sounding like or, or having a hunger for a Catholic authority structure without even realizing it.
0: Yeah, and, and now let me be the bad guy and push the discussion in the, op, in the opposite direction, because although this is thought-provoking for, for an evangelical, I think, for a Protestant to see this, and, and just to realize, at least during this period of time, the Church is not practicing sola scriptura. It's got scripture. It's got the oral teaching of the apostles. It's got this magisterium that meets and council and decides and defines and sends out decrees and is able to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Okay. So it is thought provoking and it does kind of lead you in a particular direction. But now let me go the other direction because what the thoughtful Protestant will say at this point is, who cares? They will say, this doesn't prove anything. After all, Matt isn't it possible that the pattern of authority existing during the apostolic age changed when the apostles died
1: so what you're saying is when the apostolic cat dies away what the, the, mouse, comes the, <laughs> the, the, the mouse comes out the thepost mice comes out to play
0: <laughs> you're so quite basically the
1: they just quit the poet yeah everybody just quit paying attention to uh, mm-hmm. tradition in the Magisterium once Peter died right I mean that's well this th- is what this is the way that a thoughtful
0: Protestant will put it And this is the way that I put it and and I'm empathetic to this. A thoughtful Protestant will say, this doesn't prove anything what you're talking about. The question that we need to ask is not what was the practice of Christians living during the time in which apostles were walking the earth. The question that needs to be asked is what should the practice of Christians be now that there are no longer inspired apostles walking the earth? They will say, that's the key. And the answer that the thoughtful Protestant gives to this is obviously Scripture alone. I mean, or, or put this way, sure, Matt, when you have the apostles walking the earth, sure, what they teach is authoritative, and sure, when they meet in council, and of course, you know, uh, you slightly left out the fact, Ken, that at this council, apostles were leading the show. Sure, when you have inspired apostles, you can have councils and you can come to authoritative decisions, but What about when they die, when the apostles die, and what they taught orally to the church in Thessalonica or Ephesus or Philippi or wherever, what they taught orally begins to fade away, and it's not so authoritative anymore. And when Christians meet in council, and yet there are no apostles there, and their decisions are not authoritative anymore, what is the authority structure then? That's what the Protestant will ask. And I could see that that was a good question. Yeah. And I could see that my next step then would need to be for me to read through the New Testament a second time and ask some different questions. But, but you and have to something double, you want to say about that? I was about
1: to say, to double down on that, uh, you know, what I would have said, uh, too, is of course the early church fell away as soon as the last apostle dies. Look at how many problems they were having in Galatia already while Paul was alive, right? Uh, yes. But, but again, and we're going to get into this next time, we assume that Galatia was the story of the whole church, and we forget that, you know, there was also, I mean, I would have assumed that Galatia was the story of the whole church. This is just an example of how the church was getting ready to just fall away as soon as the mm-hmm. apostles died. But that discounts the fact that, of course, they were they replaced Judas with Matthias, right? Were they not going yeah. to replace Andrew? Were they not going to replace Bartholomew?
0: Yeah, there were false teachings from the beginning. Uh, there was, you know, heretical theology, if you will, beginning from the beginning, mainly the Judaizing theology though that we read about in Galatians. That's what we see Paul tackling in Romans and in First Corinthians, in other places as well. But the thing is, there was a structure of authority and the structure of authority at that time included scripture, the authority of the apostles and their ability to meet in council. And the thing is, the Protestant can rightly respond to what we've said here today by saying that doesn't prove anything. Because again, the key question is not how did things function when apostles were walking around? The key question for us is what should function as binding authority for, Christi- for Christianity once the apostles have died? And that is a question that sank deeply into me. And so I realized after looking at the question, what is the practice in the New Testament, that what I needed to do next was to read through the New Testament another time asking a different set of questions. And again, uh, questions I had never asked before, but these kinds of questions. Do the apostles say anything about what the practice of Christians will be after they have departed the scene? Um, Do we see them preparing the church for a future in which their oral teaching is no longer authoritative, in which councils are no longer authoritative, in which the Bible has become the sole infallible rule of faith and practice? Do we find them saying anything about this? Do we, we see Paul saying anything
1: like guys I'm going to be dead here before too long. I want you to write down every single thing that I say to the church next time I go visit Ephesus. Yeah, and <laughs> that
0: know? yes, and that's exactly Sorry for the cliffhanger folks, but that's exactly That's where the we're going to have step. to stop it, right? That that's where we're going to come in next week. And again, I want those questions to be ringing in your ears if you've never thought of them before, those of you li- listening. But the question is do the apostles give us any hints in the New Testament of what the authority structure will be when they're gone? Do they tell us anything about that? Do they act as though they're preparing the churches for a future of sola scriptura, a future in which the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is needed for faith and practice? That's where we're going to pick up next week.
1: Well, Ken, the, I mean, I, I think the these are all great things, and I think it's important to remind people at this point that we are not sitting here in our Catholic apologist armchair saying, "Well, this is why this is this is a wrong worldview." This is what this is the soup that you and I were living in, right? This is the soup that I lived in for the first twenty-five years of my life. This is the stuff that you know kept me up at night in Bible college. This is the stuff that I wrote songs about and had debates about, and you know did practice sermons and Sunday night service about. I mean, this is. This is yeah, the heart is and not... soul of, of what what brought me to Christianity as an adult in the first place. I mean, I was formed in it, but it was mm-hmm. studying it and coming to a personal relationship with Christ that gave me skin in the game mm-hmm. of why I needed this to be true.
0: Yeah, and uh, what you're saying reminds me too, I mean, this is not just some abstract subject. I mean, it's true that when you and I get together and you start throwing out semi-trucks running over us and this kind of thing, we can it, it can become funny and we're cracking jokes and whatnot. But yeah, this was this was my life as an evangelical protestant as i said this is the atmosphere in which i lived and moved it was and had your career as a
1: pastor yeah
0: that's true as well and and so these questions when i was finally challenged by the conversion of an, of an old friend of mine to ask the question does the bible really teach this these are this was a real process and a really painful process even if we can talk about it now and have fun and laugh and joke and all the rest.
1: And in my case, it was like a seven or eight year process. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, this Damn. is this is not something we can, so we can discuss it in a half an hour. We can't solve it in a half an hour. And uh, that's not how it was solved for us. But we're glad that you were part of the discussion with us uh, for this episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley, my colleague. Uh, please subscribe. Please share this. Uh, please join the conversation. Um, either here on YouTube or at our website, Coming Home Network's website, chnetwork.org. Visit our online community as well. Ken and I are always hanging out in there and having great conversations. And if this is something that you're struggling with, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to disagree with us. It's okay to Mm. stoke the fire a little bit. Our our goal is to to bring people to a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for your time. Ken, thank you. Thank you, Matt. I'm looking forward to next time. You left us with a cliffhanger, man. I'm trying. (laughs) All right. Until then, take care. We'll see you soon.